Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15. There are, there are times when I, I notice all these connections between what we're singing and what's coming. And I'm, and I'm so like, are you, are you reading the passage ahead of time and picking your songs accordingly? Um, if you're doing that, great. And if you're not doing that, I think it's hilarious. And it's fabulous. And it's not surprising to me, actually, because given the way the Spirit of God works, uh, why should we be surprised? Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Teliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears, and the mowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. It's, it's worth reflecting on this story of Saul and Agag, because the story of Saul and Agag will have a reprisal many centuries later when there is the descendant of Saul's family, Mordecai, and there is the descendant of Agag, Haman the Agagite. The book of Esther is actually a part of the redemption story of the house of Saul. That here, this, what, what, in one sense you could say, Haman the Agagite is trying to take vengeance on this family of Saul, and he has his comeuppance as the Lord shows mercy to his people once again. Now, there are two themes that we'll be looking at tonight. There's the regret of God and the hearing, or lack thereof, of Saul. So I want to start just with those two themes. We've just heard Samuel say, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And yet, we've heard that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, what do you do with two statements that are sounding quite contradictory. Now, it's one thing if you say, ah, well, you know, Moses said it this way, and then, you know, John the Apostle says it this way. Okay, well, you can see, okay, there's a change in redemptive historical context, or one book says it this way, another book says it that way. Okay, difference of perspective. But here we have the same author, in the same chapter, just a couple verses apart, saying seemingly diametrically opposed things. 
Now, it's the same word in Hebrew, in case you're wondering, and it's used four times in the chapter. Verse 11, where God says, I regret I have made Saul king. And then twice in verse 29, where Samuel says that the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. And then again in verse 35, where the author tells us the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. So what does it mean for God to regret doing something? Now, plainly, it doesn't mean the same thing as when we regret doing something. That's Samuel's point. God is not a man that he should have regret. For God, it's not, oops, shouldn't have done that. That's not what it means for God to have regret. Rather, God's regret signals a major turning point in what he is doing in history. So we'll see that as we go through our text. Now, secondly, so I want, to see, I want you to see these themes of regret and hearing or obedience as being very much connected. Because the second is the theme of hearing or obeying. Actually, the word is translated both hearing and obeying in this chapter, but it's the same word every time. So it's when, for instance, in when he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying, literally hearing the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey, to hear, is better than sacrifice. We, we cluck our tongues at Saul, shocked that he did not obey God. God had been perfectly clear. He had given Saul a direct, specific command. And yet Saul thought that he knew better than God. Now, let's be honest with ourselves here. Have we ever thought that we knew better than God? Has God really said? That's what the serpent said to Eve. And that's what happens every time we sin. Every time we sin, has God really said? Wouldn't God prefer it if you did this instead? Now, Saul's rebellion is especially poignant because it's based on such good intentions. Think about the two sins that we've seen in Saul. Last time we saw his first error, that he offered the sacrifices instead of waiting for Samuel. What was his sin? He offered sacrifices to the Lord. He's worshipping God. How can you go wrong worshipping God? And his second error that we look at tonight was that he did not totally destroy the Amalekites. He leaves Agag alive. And he brings some of their flocks and herds for sacrifices to the Lord your God. He's worshipping God. Now, it's worth noting that we see this over and over throughout the scriptures. The Israelites tried to worship Yahweh with a golden calf. Needless to say, Yahweh was not particularly pleased by this because he had said, don't do that. Ananias and Sapphira try to worship God and they just happened to lie about the percentage of what they were giving. You, if you worship God in some other way than he has commanded, if you try to lie to the Holy Spirit, it's not going to work. If you would worship God, then you must hear his word and do what he says. Man looks at the outward appearance. Man looks at, ah, he's offering sacrifices. He's doing all these great things. But the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what our text tonight shows us. The opening verse of the chapter highlights this central issue of obedience. The command of Samuel to Saul is, Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now, this is the same verb that we're going to see throughout the chapter. So let me show you 
where, where it shows up because you're, you're, the translation will give you several different translations of it. And I understand why. Because the, ver, the verb shama is to hear or is it to obey? <laughs> it can mean either one depending on context and that's okay. That's why I, I don't fault the ESV for doing different translations because they're trying to communicate what this is saying. But it's useful to know what's going on here. So in verse 4, the, when he summons the people, this is the verb, the verb to cause to hear. It's the same verb used in a different form. Verse 14, Samuel hears the bleating of the sheep. Verse 19, why did you not hear the voice of the Lord? Implied obey. Verse 20, Saul's answer, I have heard, I have obeyed. And then verse 22, Shama is translated twice as obey. To hear is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And then in verse 24, Saul acknowledges his sin of obeying or hearing the voice of the people. Whose voice do you obey? Well, if you think about what is the voice that you're listening to? What are the voices that convince you to do what you do? Well, that's the voice that you hear. That's the voice you obey. If you hear the word of the Lord, then you will do the word of the Lord. Saul has been exalted as king over Israel. Will he humble himself before the Lord's prophet? Will he hear? Will he hear and obey what God tells him? We saw a couple weeks ago in Psalm 40 that David says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. He's reflecting back on Saul. But when in Psalm 40, David says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Uh, literally, ears you have dug for me. David is quoting from 1 Samuel 15 and saying that, Unlike Saul, he is the one who hears and does what God says. Uh, that's why Hebrews will put Psalm 40 into the voice of our Lord Jesus. Because our Lord Jesus is the one who finally does what God said. And actually, in Hebrews, it'll take that, and ears you have dug for me, and turn it into a body you have prepared for me. Because what has God done in the incarnation? He has brought that ear you need, you need an ear that hears the word of the Lord. Well, how can you have an ear that hears the word of the Lord unless it's attached to a body that will do it? And that's what is missing in Saul. That's what is partly present in David and what our Lord Jesus will bring to full incarnation. In verses 2 and 3 then, we hear God's command to Saul through Samuel. Here's what, here's what Saul's supposed to do. The Lord says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25 recounts that story. And then he says, go and strike Amalek and, to, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, it's worth noting that this is what Saul is commanded to do, and he will only partially succeed, and then he'll fail, and it'll be left unfinished. And by the way, this is what David will finish when David is not quite king yet. But it's, this will be David succeeding where Saul has failed. So that's where our story is going, is Saul will fail at the task of destroying the Amalekites. David will succeed. 
David will accomplish and finish the job that Saul failed to finish. Now, some have some have wrestled with this, and understandably. Is, is God commanding genocide, the eradication of a whole people group based on ethnicity or religion? What exactly is God saying? Now, the word translated devote to destruction is the Hebrew word cherem, which means to utterly destroy as an act of worship. It is, it is holy war. Uh, it is a war in which the Son of God brings the judgment of God in destroying a nation that has utterly rejected the word of the Lord. As such, only the Son of God has a right to engage in cherem warfare, in holy war. Israel had been commanded to do this when they entered the promised land. Israel, as God said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. He, Israel is to come in and destroy the Canaanites and the seven nations of, of, in, that, in the land in order to bring the final judgment on them as a picture of the final judgment that is due to all of humanity for sin. And so in this respect... Israel had been the Son of God called to bring justice to the nations. And what God is doing with Saul, remember I've I've argued that this first part of the book of Samuel is saying that Israel has failed to be the Son of God. Israel has not done what God called them to do. And now the king is called to succeed where Israel failed. And so God gives to Saul the same sort of command that he had given to Israel. Be my instrument of bringing the final judgment on the earth here against the Amalekites. But just note, only the Son of God has the right to bring this final judgment. And that is only when God commands it. If Israel starts running off, or if the king starts running off on his own, he, then he is not obeying the, the, the voice of the Lord. This sort of thing, this harem warfare, is the eruption of God's last day's judgment into the middle of history as a warning to all nations of what lies in store for them in the future if they rebel against the Lord. So as king, Saul is now called to be an instrument of God's final judgment against Amalek. He is called to be the son of God. God is testing him. Will he succeed where Israel failed? And so he, he summons the people of Israel and uh, brings, about, uh, brings a, a large army up against the Amalekites. Notice... Notice how our, 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 our author is very careful to honor Saul for his good decisions. He spares the Kenites. Kenites are not Amalekites. The Kenites were related to Moses' father-in-law. They had settled in the Negev with Judah, a region bordering the Amalekites. And he recognizes, okay, the Kenites, they're not part of this Kherom warfare. I need to make sure, let them know, get out of here. We're coming against the Amalekites, not you. So Saul does well at that. Let's honor him for that. He obeys the word of the Lord in that respect. He is merciful to those who are not under God's wrath. And so he defeats the Amalekites, and he, but he takes Agag captive, and the telling line that you know, all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Oops. Yeah. And they, they do this with good intentions. Let's worship the Lord with this. I mean, what's, 
What's the difference between devoting to destruction and offering it as a sacrifice? It's, it's offered to the Lord. Do you know what the difference is? If you devote it as destruction, it's all burned with fire. If you offer it as a sacrifice, you get a tasty dinner. Because that's... You're offering peace offerings. The worshippers all part... You're, you're like, ooh, there's some good mutton here. There's some tasty steaks. We got some... I mean, this is going to be a good dinner. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a ju- good juicy steak. Unless God told you that steak was his. When God says, that side of beef belongs to me, don't eat it. Now, Samuel is miles away, but the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, if if God is sovereign, if, if he knows all that is going to happen... If he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass, how can God say, I regret that I have made Saul king? Does God regret what he himself ordained? Yes. Scripture says so, so we shouldn't have a problem saying what God says if if he says it. He's right. Let's just agree with that. So, okay, God regrets that he made Saul king. That doesn't mean, God doesn't say, that he was surprised at what Saul did. It means that he regrets making Saul king. Now, what does that mean? Okay, this is where we that's where we'll go. But notice Samuel's response. He was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel plainly does not understand, okay Lord, what are you doing? Why have you done this? Why, why did you have me anoint him king if he was just going to fail like this? And Samuel is angry, and Samuel is crying out to the Lord. Now, we saw last time that Saul set up his first altar after his victory over the Philistines. Now in verse 12, it is told Samuel that Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Saul has begun to act like a king like the other nations, building monuments to himself. And he still thinks that he is pleasing God. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I haven't quite finished killing all the flocks and herds yet, but I'm about to when we offer the sacrifices. Glad you're here. You can bless them. But what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Oh, they brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now, what is particularly ingenious about this is that God had said in the law that sacrifices should be from the best of the flocks, never from the weak and the lame. So Saul is just taking the principle of the law and applying it to this this situation. Samuel's not having any of it. Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Please speak. Though you are little in your own eyes, 
Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you not hear the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? But I, I, I have heard the voice of the Lord. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission. I brought Agag. I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. And the people took the spoil and, but to, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Why does it matter whether we slaughter it on the field or in Gilgal? Wouldn't it be better to offer it in sacrifice? What's wrong with what we did? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in hearing the voice of the Lord? Behold, to hear is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. It's easy sometimes to point out how other people do this. But my task as a preacher is not to congratulate you for not being like other people. Because we are just like Saul. We twist God's word to our own advantage, making it say what we want it to say. We offer our little sacrifices in order to please our own appetites. We want to look good in the eyes of others. We want to do the things that will make them happy. And we want to be able to, oh, give our 10% here in order to spend the rest on our pleasures. But Samuel says that Saul's bringing the Amalekite animals as sacrifice to Gilgal is as iniquity and idolatry. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The whole prophetic approach to sin and idolatry is rooted here in Samuel's identification of rebellion and idolatry. To reject the word of the Lord is idolatry because it means that you are setting up another standard besides the Lord God. If the the Lord God said this, and you're like, well... I'll do that, but I'll do it this way. No, no, God said this way. He said, devote to destruction. That does not mean sacrifice to the Lord your God. He said, devote to destruction. To reject the word of the Lord is idolatry, because it means you're saying, I know better than God. And we need to repent of that. Saul said to Samuel, You're right. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Saul is quick on the spot to acknowledge his sin. And we should be impressed with that, at least in the first half of the sentence. But the second half of the sentence reflects the problem. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul is the king. He is the one who has been chosen by God to be what Israel failed to be. In chapter 14, we heard the people were wiser than Saul. They were the ones who ransomed Jonathan from Saul's foolish oath. Now we hear that Saul fears the people. He was supposed to fear God. He was supposed to hear and obey God's voice. But instead, he feared the people and heard and obeyed their voice. Now, we need a king who will fear God and obey his voice. We need King Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who hears the voice of the Father and does what the Father says. Jesus is the King, the Son of God, who will do what Adam and Israel and Saul and David all failed to do. He fears the Lord, he hears the Lord, he obeys his Father. And we in Christ are called to fear and hear our Heavenly Father. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you fear God more than you fear others, then you will be a wise and faithful leader. What about you, O husband? Do you fear your wife? Are you more concerned with what she thinks of you or about what God thinks of you? It's a problem in every relationship. We let what others think of us dictate what we say and what we do. If you fear the Lord more than you fear anyone else, then you will be able to love the people around you well. But if you fear the people, then you will not love the people well. If you fear others, then think about Saul. Here's Saul trying to lead Israel to do what is right before God. And he hears their voice and he fears them. And he's more concerned with what they think. And so he's like, okay, fine. Yeah, that's true. That's a good idea. Let's sacrifice to the Lord all these animals, the good ones. And think about how this works. They'll be happy with me. They'll think I'm a good leader because, oh, they'll have a nice dinner after this. Saul's fear of the people is revealed even more in his repentance than in his sin. The thing is, Saul's repentance actually starts off well and then goes back to his fundamental fear. Not only does he acknowledge his fear of the people in verse 24, but he goes on to demonstrate it in verses 25 to 30. Because implicit in his request for to Samuel, come with me that I may worship the Lord. What does he mean? Come with me, otherwise I'll lose face in the sight of the people. The last time I went to Gilgal without you and offered sacrifices without you, that didn't end well. Now I'm going to do it again without you? I need you, Samuel, to prop me up in the eyes of the people. He's still doing it. And Samuel said, no. I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turns to go, and Saul tears a corner of Samuel's robe. Remember this, because David will do the same thing to Saul years later. And Samuel replies, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, God had just said, I regret making Saul king. And now Samuel says that God doesn't have regret. What? I want you to see what God is doing here and what God does with this idea of his regret. Because back in Genesis 6, God said, I regret making man. And so he brings a flood to destroy humanity. So, plainly, regret does not mean, I wish I had never done that. I mean, after all, in the flood, God is not destroying all humanity. He is rather, there's a corner that's turning. 
This is when God says, I regret something, this is a major corner that is either going to be turned or not turned, depending on what God does with his regret. What you see in the flood is a seismic shift in God's purposes for history. God's regret or his repentance about making man means that God is now going to bring about a fundamental change in covenant history. Now, the next time we hear God regretting something in the Bible is in Exodus 32, after the sin of the golden calf, where the Lord says that he will destroy Israel and make a great nation of Moses, and Moses begs him not to, and the Lord repented. The Lord regretted his decision to destroy Israel. In other words, he chooses not to turn a new corner and say, Israel's gone, we'll start over with Moses. And in Numbers 23, Moses says that God is not a man that he should regret or repent. That's what Samuel is quoting here in chapter 15. And then in Deuteronomy 32, and again in Judges 2, the Lord regrets or repents over the suffering of his people. So so what does it mean that God repents or regrets? Well, in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve to be the glory of his creation. They rebel. And so God sets a different course at the flood. In Exodus, God delivers his people from Egypt and brings them to himself. They rebel. And so God nearly sets a different course. But Moses intercedes. And so God stays the course. In Joshua, the Lord brings his people into the promised land. They rebel. And so God hands them over to their enemies. But he remembers his promises and he regrets their suffering. He does not make a major change of course. So what is it going to be here in Samuel? Will there be a major change of course where God turns from one way of doing things to another? Or will he relent and stay with Saul? Will Samuel be like Moses and intercede for Saul? No. Saul is a dead end. Saul is like humanity before the flood. We need a Noah. Actually, Noah is given his name because this one will comfort us. And the word comfort is the same word translated regret here. Just a different stem. So in one, in one stem it means regret. In the other stem it means comfort. That's why I'm convinced that the Noah story is very much in the backdrop of what's happening here. Saul is like humanity before the flood. Saul is like the the wilderness generation that had to die in the wilderness before Israel could enter the promised land. We need a Joshua. We need a David. We need a man after God's own heart. One who will hear and obey what God says. So when Samuel says that God is not a man that he might have regret, Samuel is actually explaining God's regret. God has said that Saul is rejected as king. That is non-negotiable. There is nothing that Saul can do to change God's mind. God is not a man who says something lightly. If God says you are rejected and that's final, then you are rejected and that's final. I mean, you may recall that when Jonah gets his calling to go to Nineveh, he's like, he's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going. Because he knows that when God sends a prophet to give warnings, that means that God is very likely to have mercy on them. 
and he doesn't want that to happen to Nineveh. Samuel says, we're past that point. When he says God will not have regret, he's saying, God is not changing his mind on this one. He has changed his mind about you, and that's final. I said earlier that Saul continues in his fear of man and does not truly turn back to the Lord. And you see this in verse 30. I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. What's my real fundamental interest? Is it that I can worship the Lord? No, it's that you'll honor me before the people so that I'll look good before them. If they see that Samuel is not with him, they'll know he's in trouble with the Lord. So Samuel goes with him. But what he does does not make it easier on Saul. Because when he gets there, Samuel says, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, Samuel had retreated into the background in order to allow Saul to serve as the Lord's anointed. But with the demise of Saul, Samuel returns to to prominence. Agag comes cheerfully. Hey, if I haven't been executed yet, maybe there's hope. But Samuel says to him, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And then comes one of the great lines in military history. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Just see the picture here. Samuel is an old man. We have no indication that Samuel had ever fought in a battle before. And now Samuel does what Saul had failed to do. It's not just that he cut off his head or something like that. He hacked him to pieces. You just see this this old man who's probably not all that strong anymore. Doing what the king would not do. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. Samuel still probably doesn't really fully understand what God is doing. But he grieves with God's heart over Saul. Because it says the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is not something that God was just sort of like... God may not have, I mean, his, his, we talk about emotions and affections. God has affections. He, to say that God, he doesn't feel things the way we do, that's entirely backwards. He gave us our emotions that we might reflect something about his affections. That's where it, it's, this is that if we say that, if we say that God, I mean, God loves God regrets. God has, again, how we articulate that is important, but also get be careful. But it's the glory of the glory of Israel is not a man that he should have regret, but he did regret making Saul king because Saul did not obey his voice. He is not wishy-washy in his judgments. He will not change his mind. And now. The word of the Lord has come to you. When the word of the Lord comes to you, what will you do with it? 
Will you hear it and obey it? Will you hear the word of the Lord and do what he says? This is where, this is why this whole story is leading us, driving us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who hears the word of the Lord and does it. He is the one who puts it into practice and is the one who now sits at the right hand of the Father as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That he is the one who succeeds where Adam had failed, where Saul failed, where David failed. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and calls you and me to hear his word and put it into practice in the way that we walk before him. Lord, have mercy on us and help us because we hear your word and too often we let it bounce off us and we fear man more than we fear you. And we are concerned with what others think of us and with what others will say to us and what others will do to us. And we don't fear you. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice and to do what you say. That we might believe your promises. That we might walk humbly and faithfully before you. Doing that which you have said. That we would not turn aside from the path that you have called us to. But rather that we would be faithful in in walking humbly before you. Thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the one who came in our flesh and who has accomplished all that we had failed to do. Thank you for him who loved us and gave himself for us. And have mercy on us, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit and renew us by your Spirit that we might be your people, hearing your voice, loving you, loving one another. Thank you, Father, for for this congregation and for their work of faith, for their labor of love, for their steadfastness in hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us as a congregation to walk before you, to know your word and to do it, to put on the whole armor of God as your people and to be diligent and faithful in walking before the watching world as those who have been joined to the life of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.